Father, we're grateful that you brought us together again this morning, and we're thankful that you have fed us in um, the confession of our faith and our sins, the hearing of the word, and, and Lord, the receiving of the word in communion, and we're grateful. And I ask today that you will give the teacher clarity and and uh, clearness of mind, and for those who are here to listen, that, um, Lord, you'd open their hearts and minds to what you would have to teach us. May we be sensitive to your own movement, Lord, with your word and the application of it to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whoever comes in last can close the door. That'd be great. It's just my neurosis, I'm afraid. Um, Okay, so we're in Hebrews, and we we wanted to get through Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, last week, and I think we got to verse 3, um, which is bad news for an eight-week series on this whole book. Uh, my goal is to get through chapter 2 today. Yeah, I mean, we'll see, we'll see. I mean, it was, it's fun, isn't it? Because the, the, um, the beauty's in the details. It's like, it's an appreciation of anything um, that's beautiful and good. It's the details that kind of get you locked. Um, I, I um, you know, I, I was a Philistine growing up. I didn't have much of an appreciation for the arts. I'm embarrassed about that. I did, I did like opera, but, that was, but I didn't really like... Um, I wasn't into painting. My father was really into it, really. My, my dad's a romantic at heart. Um, and so he would drag, drag me through galleries. But then I married Naomi, and, and Naomi was an art educator, art education major, taught art, and was an artist and is an artist. And um, so then I thought, I, I better get conversant. You know, the, the, the stakes were higher. Um, and so when I began to sort of fiddle around with the history of art, of course, I, like many people, I just fell in love with the Impressionists, and I'm sure I'm not alone in that. Um, you know, we, and we would, when we lived in, overseas, we'd travel to these various um, in, Impressionist uh, um, uh, displays that were on. Mon, uh, the Monet seascape was in Edinburgh for a year. I mean, it was just wonderful. We went down to Paris, and some of you have done this, and we did all the, all the museums there. Um, which is, you know, I'm, we're, we're kind of like some of you all probably kamikaze travelers. You know, you go to these cities, you're like, well, I'm, we may never be back here again, so we better do everything, um, which is exhausting. I'm not sure that's the way to go. Um, but, uh, I re- but Van Gogh became of special interest to me. Even Van Gogh's life became of interest to me. You know, Van Gogh uh, was the son of a minister. Van Gogh wanted to be a minister himself, as I understand it. Um, actually was dismissed from seminary because they didn't think he was suitable for the ministry because he wanted to live with the poor. Um, it, was, it became a real sort of ideological battle with the Dutch Calvinist world from which Van Gogh came. Um, and so Van Gogh then goes into the world in a way to... It's a very kind of anti-church establishment move, I think. Um, for example, in the famous painting Starry Night, if you look at Starry Night... Um, big sky, swooping clouds, landscape, and if you look closely at, the, at all the homes that are down, light is reflecting out of all the windows except for the church in the middle. There's no light coming out of the church. Now, it's kind of a pretty bald statement, right? So, I, I mean, I, I like Van Gogh a lot. I find him fascinating. Anybody who cuts their ear off is a, you know, an interesting person to engage. Um, but Van Gogh... Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of his paintings sort of up close, this impasto approach that sort of builds paint on top of paint and then even has sort of bare canvas at times. I, I, you don't know that in these post 
poster reprints that you get, but you go and you see one like the famous sunflowers or or the picture of um, of the chair and the bed and the pipe, Van Gogh's father's pipe on the table, and, and you stare at it, and all of a sudden you realize, okay, it's the details that are so fascinating. You go, you, and, and you just have to look for a while. Hebrews is like this. It's a detailed kind of look from multiple angles. It's, it's not a flat-brushed medium. This is an impasto kind of book. Things are built on top of one another, and uh, we could probably do this series again and again and not begin to plummet it. So I, I'm sure you're okay with that. Uh, I'm okay with that too. Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 is the prologue. This is the author to the Hebrews writing to this Jewish um, Hellenistic uh, congregation, encouraging them in their faith, most likely, though again this is speculative, but most likely, given the content of the book itself, most likely addressed to second generation believers because they're dealing with the problems of second generation believers. Um, things are normal. Christianity is normal now. Um, uh, when you're called to give an ultimate account for what you believe in and what that might actually mean at the final moment. Because these, I mean, we're talking here in a period of time when being a Christian was um, a precarious kind of life. So here you have a second generation group of Christians, they've inherited this faith, and they're having to raise the critical questions themselves, well, what am I going to do when my life is on the line? I mean, that sounds really sort of... Um, hyperbolic and over-the-top, given our sort of comfortable location here with our ties and coats on and dresses. But, I mean, they're raising the question here in, the fir- in this first century world and maybe early second century world, am I willing to die for Jesus? And, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm going to persevere. I- I'm not sure I'm going to hold on to this faith. Because, well, as we talked about last week, um, a lackadaisical, sort of half-hearted, apathetic approach to the faith doesn't produce martyrs. It doesn't. And so they're having to raise this kind of question, or is your faith a martyr faith? And, and this hit me last week after our, our time together, right? So here you have Hebrews 1, 1-4. I won't read it again for time. Um, but in various ways God spoke in the past to our fathers, but in the last days He's spoken to us in the Son... Who is the Son? He is the reflection of the very glory of God. He bears the very character, the stamp of God's nature. If we're wondering what God is like in any kind of abstract way that's detached from the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, the author of the Hebrews is saying that's a bad approach to beginning to conceive of your theological outlook. You need to take a long and hard look at Jesus, at Jesus of Nazareth. And by the way, that Jesus of Nazareth Fully God, fully man is the one um, who reflects to us the very glory of God. He's the imprint, the character. Um, he's the uh, coin press of the very nature of what God's godness actually is. And he upholds all things by himself. So he's the creator, we saw last week, and he's also the redeemer. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down. That makes his role, Jesus' role, and this is a theme that will come up again and again, that makes makes Jesus' role unique from the standpoint of anything that preceded Jesus. He is both high priest and he is the victim. 
He is both the one who's bringing the sacrifice and he is the sacrifice at the same time. And unlike the ritual that we will talk about later in our series together, unlike Yom Kippur, the Day of the Atonement, when the high priest would go in and then he would come out, and then next year he'd go in and he'd come out, unlike that movement in and out, we see Jesus going into the Holy of Holies, the very throne room of God, and taking residence there because of his sacrifice. He sits down. It's actually, um, given what precedes it, it's it's an astounding statement about Jesus' divinity and the finality of his sacrifice for the sins of humanity. So he goes on and he says, um, when he made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and having become as much superior to angels as the name that he has obtained is more excellent than theirs. Now, a lot there, a lot to talk about. Um, one thing I do want to emphasize is this handing over of the name. Why is Jesus superior to angels? So we're going to talk about for the rest of our morning. Why is Jesus superior to angels? He's superior to angels because he's been given the name, which is a name that they could not bear. Of Philippians chapter 2, you know this, right? Um, Had this mind which was in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, he was in the form of God. He didn't think it was robbery to be equal with God, but he took on himself that which he, he was not. He became a man in the form of a servant. He was obedient, and not just any kind of obedience. He was obedient unto the death of the cross, that kind of obedience. And then what does it say right after this? And God handed over to him the name that's above every other name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul is making a strategic theological move there in Philippians 2, because that's Isaiah chapter 45 language. In Isaiah chapter 45, it's a carbon copy. Paul is drawing directly from there. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess what in Isaiah 45? That Yahweh is Lord and no one else is. And here you come to Philippians 2 and Paul is saying that Jesus himself has been handed that name, Yahweh's name, the name of the God of the Old Testament, so that Jesus' identity and Yahweh's identity bleed onto one another in such a way that I cannot speak about one without speaking about the other. He's been given the name that's above every other name. This is a claim to Jesus' divine identity. But this is what hit me last week as after, after our time together. I wish it kind of hit me beforehand, but after our time together with Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. You all taking these speech classes or interviewing classes or rhetoric classes, whatever. I was a speech minor in college, which is a kind of a bit of a joke, actually. Um, I was a speech minor in college. And, I mean, you, you think about this with your children, with yourself. First impressions, right? What comes out of your mouth first in an interview setting? What comes out of your mouth first in a classroom setting? How are you going to present yourself? And this hit me last week as I thought about Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. How does the author to the Hebrews, who has an agenda, right? You know Hebrews chapter 11, where we're going. By faith, um, Abraham went out, and he didn't even know where he was going. 
by faith Moses obeyed the word of God and led the children of Israel out. By faith, and it goes on, of men of whom the world is not worthy. Some of them got sawn in two. Some of them were killed. Some of them were tortured. He's going and moving to this demonstration of faith and what faith's ultimate cost might be. Hebrews chapter 12 looking unto Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So, the author of the Hebrews has a big agenda here. And the agenda is to encourage and to support and to bolster these people's faith in light of the ultimate realities of life. To help them believe that it's true, that it's true for them, and that whatever sacrifice comes on account of it is worth it because of the object of our faith. So this is big stuff here in Hebrews. This is, uh, and we're going to see this in Hebrews as well, this is steak and potatoes Christianity. This isn't milk Christianity, this is steak and potatoes. But how does he lead out of the gate? How he leads out of the gate to encourage this fledgling body of second generation Christians is to paint and present a very large and a very beautiful picture of Jesus. He wants to paint a very big and beautiful and large picture of Jesus. And in the painting of that picture of Jesus, in and of itself, has transformative value. I mean, there's often a lot of pressure on teachers and preachers to do what various folks call application. Right? So, for example... Um, you do a series on Hebrews, or you do a series on John, and you need to help people know how this is going to make their marriages better, how it's going to make them be better parents, how it's going to be, make them better citizens in their community, how it's going to help them with their pet sin struggles that they have. And all of that, by the way, is legit. Yeah, I think that's legit. But I often think what we forget in this discussion about application as we move the Scriptures into people's lives and ask the big so what question as that pertains to me and to you and the way in which we live, what I think we often forget is talking about Jesus, reflecting on Jesus, the significance of Jesus, His person, His work, His atoning work, His life, his death, his resurrection, his beauty, his glory. Reflecting and talking about that is in and of itself an act of very personal application. It shines on us in a way to empower and to transform and to give us a very large view of Jesus that takes us away from ourselves and turns us to him. Last, last year we did Colossians, and one of the main themes that came up in Colossians was, especially chapter 1, verses 15 to 20, whatever your view of Jesus is, it, it needs to be bigger, right? So whatever view you have now, I mean, I'm sure, and for some of you it's real big, it's got to get bigger, right? And what does that mean? It's going to get bigger in an infinite sort of progression. Why? Because of who he is, and the reflection on who he is, is in and of itself a significant act of application and, trans and has transformative power uh, in our lives. I, I genuinely believe that. So that, that's Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. Now when we get into verses five, chapter, verse 5, all the way through the end of chapter 2, and if you have phones or whatever, I, don't, you know, I need to get a box of Bibles in here or something. Matter of fact, I'm going to... Sorry. I'm going to write myself a note. Bibles. Bring. Okay. Sorry, that was a little. Okay, so in, in, verse, in verse 5, 
um, chapter 1, verse 5, all the way through the end of chapter 2, I think we can give, if you're taking notes of me, I think we can give this um, a couple of different titles. One title would be simply, Jesus is superior to the angels. That's one title. Another title that we might give it is, Jesus Christ exalted and humiliated a suitable high priest for you and me. So we could say Jesus is better than the angels. That's, in some sense, the front matter. right? That's the particular issue that the author to the Hebrews is wanting to address, and I'm going to talk about this in a second. He's wanting to compare Jesus to the angels, but it's not simply for the sake of comparing Jesus to the angels. He's comparing Jesus to the angels to reveal to us what Jesus' particular role is as our high priest. And as our high priest, he is both exalted and he is both humiliated. He humbles himself. And in his humiliation and in his exaltation, he's a suitable high priest for you and for me. Right. So let's look at this a little bit together. Verse 5, sensitive to the time here. Um, For to what angel... Did God ever say, number one, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now let me stop here for a second. If you have Bibles in front of you, you can see that the whole of chapter 1 is set in in such a way that it looks poetic. Right, The way in which it's structured. It looks poetic. Why? Because from chapter 1, verse 5, all the way to chapter 1, verse 13, what you have is the, the apostle here citing the Bible. Psalm chapter 2, 2 Samuel chapter 7, um, Psalm 110, Psalm 45, Psalm 102. So it's what the technical term here is a katina. It's a katina. It's a, uh, or, or let's put it more on the sidewalk for me. It's a shotgun blast of the Bible. That's what it is. I mean, here the author of the Hebrews just fires a shotgun blast of the Bible to compare and contrast angels to Jesus of Nazareth. To what of the angels, he says, did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? To what of the angels did God ever say, I will be a father to you and you will be my son? Now this raises questions. And and if you're like me, I don't really like raising questions that I can't answer, but I'm about to do it right now. Why angels? Why is that the particular issue that needs to be addressed here? Well, the suggestions have been a couple, right? One suggestion is that this second generation of Um, Christians had maybe slipped into the mixture of angel worship with the worship of of, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. That's a possibility. Another option is that there's been a move that's taken place to where um, the second generation of Christians believes, and there's some Gnostic Redeemer myths from the first century world that might suggest this, that believe that their worship of God is mediated by angels. Now, one of the reasons why I like the second issue, though, again, I have no 
verification for it. I can't, you know, there's not enough substance here to be able to make a strong argument. But one of the reasons why I like that argument, at least from an internal standpoint, is that seems to be the large issue that the author to the Hebrews is trying to address. Who is your intermediary? Who is your mediator? Who is the one that stands between you and the Father in such a way to both sustain creation itself and also to sustain your salvation? It's not an angel. It's not an, it's not, and angels are, by this time we recognize there's some pretty awesome angels out there, right? Um, there's uh, Michael and there's Gabriel. And think about some of the artwork that's come from, I can think about this big old painting of Peter Paul Rubens, of Michael standing with his foot on top of Satan with his big old sword almost down his throat, right? I mean, the, angels are pretty cool, right? And I'll be honest with you, I mean, this is, they'll show you how modern I am and my lack of religious piety or whatever. I never think about angels. Do you? Matter of fact, when people start talking about angels, I kind of think, you know... I started hearing like Twilight Zone music, you know. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know what to make of angels. Um, I, as a teenager, a ju- or maybe it was junior high, I got into this um, with the, these Frank Peretti novels. Any of you know what I'm talking about? This present darkness. Um, man, I was all into that. What was the name of that one angel there? Tal, I think was his name. Boy, it made a big impression on me. All the spiritual battle that's going on, angels fighting one another. I mean, you think you just hit a speed bump, but three angels just killed a demon or something like that, right? No, I mean, I, I was, it was this whole world. And, and, I, and I should say something. I mean, I'm, I'm not proud of the fact that I don't think in those terms necessarily. No, that's not a badge of Christian maturity, I think it very much shows how I myself am located in the modern world in such a way as to be suspicious of the supernatural. Isn't that something? I, mean, I see myself even in this kind of conversation located there. Uh, Martin Luther, one of the most important biographies written on Luther is by a gentleman named Heiko Obermann. And the subtitle of the book is Martin Luther, Man Between God and the Devil. I mean, Luther recognizes that he was in a real life encounter with the devil. Do you think that way? The devil? Um, and, and I think maybe we should. In other words, there is a sort of spiritual world that's going on, and there is an angelic reality. Um, I, I've mentioned to you before, Genesis 32 is a text that's just in my world right now. God has laid it on my heart probably for a year now. And I was reading it again this morning, even in communion, while people were going forward. What happens to Jacob in the beginning of that chapter before he has this fearful encounter with Esau that he's about to have? An angel shows up to him and starts talking to him. So, I mean, I don't think there's any reason for us to doubt the significance and the importance of angels, um, this mediatorial world, or this intermediary world of spiritual beings that do God's bidding and do God's work. But as we see here in Hebrews chapter 1, they are servants. Even if they're servants of flame, right? They're servants. Um, none of them, and I think this is very important from the claim that Paul is making here in Hebrews chapter 1 and 2, no angel will ever be in God's throne room or on God's throne. There's a lot of scholarship that's been done on this to emphasize the deity of Jesus, what's called a high Christology in the early first century world. A lot of scholarship's been done on this to show how even in the intertestamental period, you might have some of these angelic figures who are semi-divine, 
One of them is called Metatron. I mean, you have some of these figures within um, the Jewish tradition that are, are around. But these figures don't sit on the throne. There's only one who sits on the throne. The throne itself is Yahweh's throne. Angels don't sit on his throne. So the claim here that Jesus is sitting in the very throne of God himself corresponds in some significant ways, I believe, to Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel the prophet goes into the throne room of God, and while Ezekiel is in the throne room, he says, and I saw on the throne one who looked like the Son of Man. I saw a man sitting on the throne. Robert Jensen, one of my favorite, uh, well, I like him a lot, I've got some issues. No, an important American theologian says, you want to know why Ezekiel saw one on the throne who looked like a man? Because God is a man, right? When we recognize the importance of the incarnation, and this is where we're going in chapter 2, Jesus comes into the world both in an act of humiliation by taking on humanity, but in his exaltation, right, back to the Father, in his exalted state right now as fully God and fully man. That, that's right now. I don't, I don't know how that works. Okay, I can't, I can't explain it to you. But Jesus now is... Corpuscular. He's got, a, he's got a body. He's a man. And according to the author of Hebrews, your whole salvation depends on that. That he's a man. Jesus is the humanizing human. He teaches us what genuine humanity is meant to look like. And he elevates it into the very life of God himself. Into the very throne room of God. There's humanity in the very throne room of God in Jesus. And by our participation in Jesus, because of our union with him, because of our salvation, we participate in the very life of God himself as well. That's the power of the gospel. It's an amazing statement. And that's what the author to the Hebrews here is saying. No angel can make that claim. No angel can say to his enemy, sit at my footstool while I'm on the throne, Psalm 110. No enemy can say that. Only Jesus can say that. So then when we go to chapter 2, right, there's a move that's made. Chapter 2, verse 1, um, if you can follow this. And, and as a little aside, this is the structure of the book of Hebrews. Right? The book of Hebrews is going to begin by emphasizing the superiority of Jesus to angels. And then he's going to make an exhortation to the readers. Then he's going to move in it back to angels and then into Moses. And he's going to show how Jesus is superior to Moses and he's our high priest. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to move to the readers again and he's going to give them an exhortation. And then he's going to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and he's going to show all the great martyrs and, and the fathers of, and mothers of the faith, Right? And he's going to say, look at them. And then he's going to go to the next chapter and he's going to move into exhortation. So that's the movement that you find throughout the, the, the book of Hebrews. This portrait of Jesus, a large portrait of Jesus, then a movement to the people toward a word of exhortation. Here's our first word of exhortation. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore we must pay the closer attention to what we have heard. I'll just go and tell you right now, I would, I would title this section, Listen Well to God's Word, Lest We Drift Away From It. Do you hear the pastoral heart here? In other words, this is not just an abstract theologian who's teaching in an ivory tower. This is a pastor who's writing to this congregation, giving them a profound theological portrait of Jesus, 
But then he's moving right into their lives and saying, make sure that you give good heed to this, to this word that's been given to you, which, by the way, is dependent on a word that's been given to me, the Old Testament and the revelation of God in Jesus. I need those to speak to you. But listen carefully to this. Why? Lest you drift. Lest you drift away from the solidarity of your commitment to what you believe. I can hear Luther right here saying, remind yourselves of your baptism. You just hear him. Remind yourself that you've been baptized. Remind yourself again. That's why, by the way, I know no one likes to come to church on baptism Sunday. I get it. You know, I get it. The little song and all the stuff. And you're like, I don't know about all of that. I understand. But baptism Sunday is a Sunday for you and for me, right? To be reminded that what's happening there to these children has happened to us as well. And we're claimed by that. We're claimed by God. I've been baptized into Him, and I need to be reminded of what that means that I've been baptized. Do you believe that God is the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? I do, right? And we're reminded. So, anyway. um, 4, verse 2. It's a message declared by angels was valid. Oh, this is weird. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. What is he, What message delivered by angels? It's possible that there's a tradition. Matter of fact, not, not possible. There is a tradition, at least within the intertestamental period, that Moses was aided by angels in the delivering of the law. It's also possible that Psalm 68, verse 18, let me make sure I have that verse right. Yes, yeah, 68, verse 18 may be interpreted itself as a claim about the angelic host themselves helping in the delivering of the law. I'm not really sure, to be honest. But it's a claim that's being made here by the authors of the Hebrews that the the distribution of the Torah to Israel was aided in some way by uh, by angelic figures. So, if that was true, then verse 3 How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation, dot, 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 we should say, from Jesus? See, it was declared at first by, not an angel, but by who? By the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard him. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. What the author of the Hebrews is doing here is he's moving now to exhortation. And he's doing so with a very sort of crafty move. God did reveal himself in his law in the Old Testament, and he did so through, an angelic fig- through angelic figures, through Moses. But how much more significant now that we take seriously God's revelation of himself in Jesus? Why? Because that comes from the Lord himself. The Lord himself has spoken this. And not only has the Lord himself spoken this, but think about Pentecost, right? He's attached to his speaking all of these signs and wonders to let you know that what he is saying is true. That signs and wonder language from an Old Testament perspective is end of the world language. End of time language. At the end of time, there's going to be signs and there's going to be wonders. And what has shocked us in the person and work of Jesus is what we expected to happen at the end of time has actually happened in the middle of time in the person and work of Jesus. And you go to Acts and crazy things are going on. Crazy things. Are they drunk? Well, no, they're just 
you know, in the spirit, right? Now, and how in the world, I've never really understood Mandarin before, but now I seem to understand it, right? Well, I've never, Russian's always, the Cyrillic tongue's always troubled me, but oh, now I, I get that, right? I mean, crazy things are happening here, supported by signs and wonders, and, uh, and this is a claim here from the authors of the Hebrews, beware, listen carefully to this, Give, e- give heed to what you hear. Now, you've heard this said around Advent before. You've heard it said from me before if you've been in any classes, but it's worth emphasizing again. We're a Reformation church. Uh, we take seriously the Reformation heritage that's been handed down to us through figures like um, Luther and Cranmer and Calvin, and, and rightly so. And all three of them would concur that the primary metaphor, sensing metaphor, sensual metaphor, by which a Christian is first and foremost understood is a Christian is a hearing or a listening agent. We hear. The hearing is even more important than the seeing. We hear. Oh, Luther's famous for saying we're most human when we're listening agents, when we hear. Why? Faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of the Lord, that's what, that's what the author of the Hebrews is saying here. Take careful heed to how you hear. Jesus said the same thing in Luke chapter 8. Take special care to how you hear and how you listen. And the author to the Hebrews is calling on these people to think about their listening mechanisms. Why? Because faith is on the line. Perseverance is on the line. And then he goes back to his previous subject matter. That was just a little break. By the way, listen well to the word of God. Back to angels, verse 5. For it's not the angels that God subjected the world to come. It's been testified somewhere. I, I love that turn of phrase, by the way. It's Psalm 8, is that somewhere. What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou carest for him? Thou didst make him for a little while lower than the angels, and thou hast crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. This, by the way, and I can't, for time's sake, can't get into it. But this rendering of Psalm 8 is a, an interpretive massive hurdle. Okay? Because the way in which the Hebrew text and the way in which the Greek translation of the Hebrew text render Psalm 8 are rather different from one another. Significantly different. And the author of the Hebrews is making some cash value off the Greek translation over against the Hebrew translation. And that is a fun issue to sort through, and we won't this morning. Okay? <laughs> But this is how he, how he interprets this Psalm 8. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. As it is, we don't see everything in subjection to him yet, but we see Jesus, who for a little while, see this is a temporal claim, for a little while he was made lower than the angels. This is an emphasis here on Jesus' humiliation. We know who he, he's the son of, he's the very character of God himself. The very radiance of his glory. But for a little while, he came down and identified himself with humanity. He took on human flesh and became human, making himself for a little while even a little lower than the angels. Right. We know Jesus is superior to the angels, but he makes himself lower than the angels for a little while. Why? Well, he goes on to say, so that by grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10 I love the way this is worded. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, 
should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is fitting. He's better than angels. He sits on the throne of God himself. He has no rival for his authority. The very glory and radiance of God's own eternal nature springs off of Jesus in his person. And yet for a little while he made himself lower than the angels. Why? It was fitting for him to do that. It corresponds properly to God's plan of salvation for that to happen. Why? Because of who we are in our human condition. It's fitting that Jesus should make himself a little bit lower so that he could identify with humanity in our suffering, so that he could redeem our suffering, enter into our suffering, and make a glorified case for our suffering before the Father on the throne. When Jesus says on the cross, the famous cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I do believe that that's a claim, by the way, that expresses a reality that Jesus was experiencing. The earth begins to, sh- to, 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 to a shake underneath us when we begin to reflect on that. God separated from God. How can that be, right? But I do believe there's also more going on there. When Jesus quotes Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting this psalm that's located right in the heart of righteous suffering. And all the righteous sufferers and the sufferers who have gone before and who will come after. Jesus is identifying himself there in his high priestly role with humanity in our suffering state. And it's fitting that he should do that. It's fitting that redemption should take place that in that way. It's fitting that Jesus should enter into the plight of humanity so that he would be a mediator for us, as we see at the end of chapter 2, who knows what it's like to be tempted who knows what it's like to be infirm, who knows what it's like to read in the psalm where the psalmist says, he knows our frame, he remembers that we're just dust, and for Jesus to say, I know what that's like to be just dust, to be in the frame of humanity. It's fitting for him to be that kind of mediator for us. He didn't have to be, but that's why he came. And why does he do it? Uh, We'll end here because of time. Verse 12, saying... He's quoting here the Psalms. I will proclaim thy name to my brethren, and in the midst of the congregation I will praise thee. That's a beautiful verse. Why does he come in this fitting way to take on our humanity so that he could redeem us through his own suffering? Why does he enter into our suffering, even in the violence and the horrific character of the cross? that gives us a portrayal of what human suffering is around the world, not in its fullness, but in a way that's fitting to the corresponding suffering of humanity. Why does he do that? So that when we gather together for worship, he comes into our midst with us, as a brother with us, and he enters into our worship with us, and he praises the Father with his brothers and his sisters in the congregation. I don't know how all that works. It kind of blows my hair back. But when we're together singing, oh, 4,000 tongues to sing, on, and the, or we hear the choir lifting up this beautiful William Cooper hymn about the struggle of doubt. And boy, if you know that brother's life story, there was a man who struggled with doubt and depression. When we come together and we sing these things together and we worship together, Jesus is in our midst as our brother, lifting his own voice in praise to the Father by the Spirit, 
because he identifies with us in our suffering and he elevates it before the Father through his own atoning work and his own eternal mediation on our behalf. Hebrews is painting a beautiful picture of Jesus' humanity and the saving effects of his humanity uh, for you and for me. All right, what's the time here? Oh, let's pray. Lord, thank you for bringing us together this morning. And I pray, oh Lord, that you'd seal on our hearts a belief that you, our human agent, live to intercede for us and you sing in our midst and you hold our salvation in your hand because you hold our humanity in yourself. We find great hope in that, Lord. Thank you for being our high priest. You know our frame, Jesus. You know we're just dust. So we ask you to pray for us. In Jesus' name, amen.